0: This morning's New Testament lesson comes to us from Paul's letter to the Philippians, the second chapter, beginning with verse 5. So listen now for what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power. Come shed abroad a Savior's love that it may kindle ours. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Of all the great rivalries in sports, one of them met in the final four last night. And unlike some of my fellow pastors in North Carolina that declared church a safe zone where the Duke UNC game wouldn't be talked about, I made no such promises. So while it's still a particularly sore spot for this particular Duke fan, my congratulations to the Tar Heel fans among us. I still love you with the love of Christ, even if I detest your color blue. And to show my love to you this morning, I'm going to make you suffer through a Duke story because here's the thing, regardless of the outcome of a game, rivalries invite us to think about our allegiances, our idols, the gods we worship, and what it means to be obedient to them. So, a few years ago, uh, the Duke-UNC basketball game at Cameron Indoor Stadium happened to fall on Ash Wednesday, and my campus ministry students had been camping out in tents like their classmates to secure a spot on the sidelines, to cheer on the Duke Blue Devils, and to witness one of these great rivalries in sports, and having spent some time in a tent to get into these games as a student myself, I understood their excitement. But the Sunday before at worship for the campus ministry, I had reminded them that the Ash Wednesday service was earlier in the day, and it was in fact possible for them to go to worship and still make it to the game. The day before Ash Wednesday, a group of my students arrived at my office door, and they said, Pastor Katie, we've got a proposal for you. And I said, okay, let's hear it. And he said, well, we heard you on Sunday, and we want to come to the Ash Wednesday service, but we're also planning on painting our faces and our bodies Duke blue for the game that night, and we're pretty sure that the ash from the cross is going to clash with the blue paint. So, this is a legitimate question I was asked, so do you think there's any way you could dye the ashes Duke blue? And they must have immediately realized what I thought of the question because I said to them, In the Bible, it says, Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I mean Jesus, not Duke. And one of them said, So that's a no? (laughs) We laughed. But their playfulness cast this kind of stark relief on the way that we align our time and our priorities, the things we do and the places we put our body in light of what we believe. In worship, we affirm with our lips Jesus is Lord, but their question made me ask myself, am I living a life in obedience to God in a way that actually reflects that affirmation? Because the call to obedience is a choice, a choice reflected in the way that we live our lives in full relationship to God. And I want to believe that it is possible to be a Duke fan or, God forbid, a Carolina fan and still be a faithful Christian. But the call to obedience that we hear in this morning's letter to the Philippians is not really a both-and kind of call. It's a call to be of the same mind as Christ Jesus. It's a call to humility and obedience. It's a call to profess Jesus as Lord, which means a rejection of all the other gods that we idolize and worship. And while it's playful to think about the ways that we worship things like a basketball team, this question of obedience to God is actually not a game. Our obedience to God is a choice and one that has implications, not only for what we think and believe, being of the same mind as Christ, but most especially for how we shape our lives and where we offer our allegiance, where our knees will bow and our tongues will confess. In May of 1934, the confessional synod of the German evangelical church met in Barmen, Germany. They were facing a different kind of question, a true question of obedience and allegiance to Jesus as Lord in the face of a changing government and social order. They were witnessing the church align with the state as Hitler rose to power. And it was a time when many Germans took the union of Christianity and nationalism and militarism for granted. And patriotic sentiments were equated with Christian truth. And so members of the Lutheran and the Reformed and the United Churches gathered to write a confession, a statement of belief about the powers that they would obey in life and in death. And in their words, they sought a common message for the need and the temptations of the church in their time. It was a message that held fast to the Word of God and called them to obedience to Christ over and above the pull to the Third Reich, and it was a confession that they knew could lead them to the cross. The opening claim of the Declaration of Barman, a confession that we in fact still hold in the Presbyterian church in this church today, it reads, Jesus Christ as he is attested for us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God which we have to hear and which we have to trust and obey in life and in death. In one sentence, the confession calls all of us to obedience to Christ, full stop. Karl Barth, one of the primary authors of the confession, recognized that when we affirm obedience to God, what comes with it is a rejection of obedience to other powers. And so through this confession, he managed to demonstrate his obedience to God without ever directly naming Hitler or the Third Reich as the other power. But anyone who has ears that can hear knows that to proclaim Jesus is Lord is also to say, and not Hitler. This confession came at a significant cost, with risk, with recognition that our obedience to God may require us to reject other allegiances. And Paul, of course, was deeply aware of this in his time as well. He was writing to the Philippians from his prison cell, and he begins the letter by saying, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or death. Faith was not an intellectual exercise, it was an embodied act. And Paul knew that even though his own body was imprisoned, he could write to his friends with great fervor, charging them to be obedient to Christ in our actions as much as in our words. For Paul, Jesus teaches us us everything that we need to know about how we're to live out our faith in obedience to God. Because Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us, his life provides us a pattern for our living. And so Paul appeals to us to be of the same mind, having the same love as Jesus the Christ. But to be of the same mind doesn't just mean that we think the way Jesus thought, but that we also act the way Jesus acted. We're called to obey God not just in thought but in word and in deed, not just with our minds but with our hands and our our hands and our feet and our heart. We're called to remain faithful to God's call to love even if it comes at a cost. This morning's passage is actually believed to be a hymn of the church a song that would have been sung by the whole community as they strived to follow Jesus together. And so, Paul shared this hymn, this song with the Philippians, not to get into a doctrinal debate about the humanity and divinity of Jesus, not even to explain what happened on the cross, but as a template for the way that we might live a cruciform life. It's a call to live our lives in the way of the cross, where our relationship with God and our love of neighbor matter over and against all other allegiances or relationships that we can choose. So, obedience to God is simply an invitation to imitate Christ in our lives. And that means we're called to put our bodies in places that cry out for healing and wholeness. It means we're called to embody compassion and humility so that others might know the love of Christ. It means we're called to hear the cries of the oppressed, to loose the bonds of injustice, to strive for a more peaceable kingdom. But most especially, it means that we're called to do all those things, even if they're unpopular. Even if other powers demand our attention, even if they cost us our place or our wealth or our privilege. As we draw near to the cross next week, we see that Jesus embodied these values even to the point of death. His obedience to God was a choice and one that disrupted the powers of the day. And yet, His faithfulness gives us the strength to choose and to choose to follow God because we know that in Christ we have a source of hope, resurrection, and salvation. When we look to Jesus, we know that choosing God gives us life even if it might cost us something along the way. So this morning we celebrated Jacob's baptism. And it is a really, really special day. More often than not, we find ourselves baptizing infants in the Presbyterian church because we believe so firmly that God's love comes first, even before we're able to respond. And that's no less true for Jacob. He's here because God loved him first, too. And God is moving in Jacob's life in ways that inspired him to read the Bible and to ask his dad questions, and most especially because Gus and Leo invited him to church, right? Baptism is ultimately God's action first. And so, when we gather at the font, we do so remembering the promises of God, that God loves us fiercely and first, that God sent Jesus to make that love tangible and real, that God showed that love, not death, has the final word. But sometimes when we dwell in the sort of preciousness of baptizing an infant, we forget that our baptism invites our response. A response that Jacob offered today with a bold, "'I do.'" Because baptism begins a life in obedience to God's love. In baptism, we choose Jesus because God chose us. And we make promises and strive to be obedient to Jesus because Jesus showed us that obedience and faithfulness to God's love for us. It's a really bold task. And ultimately, it's an act of faith for each and every one of us here. But here's the best news of all, just like this morning's letter to Philippians isn't just an instruction from Paul but a hymn that the whole church sings, the call to obedience, this life of faith is a journey that we make together. Jacob and Michael and Matthew weren't the only ones who made promises this morning. All of us made promises too to help them and to help one another come to know Jesus and through our lives of faith, not just our minds but our hearts and our hands and our feet, to help one another grow in faith together. Jesus was obedient to God and reflected God's love even to the point of death on a cross. That is the depth of God's love for us. And so we're called to be obedient to God, to reflect that love over and over again above the powers and temptations of this world, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.